Thank you very much. It's great to be uh, speaking to you at the start of this new year, 2018. And for lots of people, uh, the turn of the year is when they start to ask lots of questions. They start to question lots of different things in their lives. And the fact they've had a bit of time off makes them start to think, how do I feel about my job? How do I feel about the relationships in my life? How do I feel about my partner? Um, And actually, uh, it's said that Tomorrow, this Monday tomorrow, is known as Divorce Monday, um, because it, whether it's because people have had to spend a week with their partner's extended family or whatever it is, that's the time when apparently three times as many people as usual uh, contact a divorce lawyer, or at least that's what the divorce lawyers would like you to believe. If you're feeling a bit like that, can I just recommend the marriage course? Uh, it, it, it starts in seven days' time. Um, it, it, it's, it's a much better thing to do. And it's much cheaper, actually, than um, <laughs> all of the alternatives. Um, but then the following Monday, so next Monday, is known as Blue Monday. And that's uh, uh, due to some slightly ridiculous equation of the amount of days between Christmas and that date, the number of days to your pay packet, the number of debts you're likely to incur over Christmas. All really fun, exciting things. They, um, they say that's the, that's the day that people are most likely to be miserable in the year. Now, I don't know how you're wired. I don't know if you're an pessimist or an optimist, if you're a glass half empty person or a glass half full person, I'm basically a relentless optimist. I'm not glass half empty or glass half full, I'm just full. And so when, it, when I hear things like that, I think I'm going to take this on. So tomorrow might be Divorce Monday, but for me, it's going to be the Monday of the year when I most celebrate my wife. And I'm going to buy flowers, I'm going to have a wonderful time. And then... Well, you can say, you can say, oh, look, you know, next week is uh, Blue Monday. Well, I'm going to resolve to make that the happiest Monday of my year. I'm going to lean in. I'm going to have a great time. So would you join me in that? And I don't know what questions you've been asking uh, as the years turn. But one of the questions I want to look at today is how do you start well and finish strong? How do you start well and finish strong? People think about all sorts of beginnings at the start of a new year, new ideas, new resolutions, new lifestyle regimes, new opportunities. Maybe you want to take a step forward in your faith. Maybe that's why you're here today. Maybe one of the first times you've ever come to church and you think, I want to take a step forward in my faith. Maybe you would love to see a breakthrough in your faith. You started reading the Bible in one year. You want to hear God speak to you this year. Maybe you want to see a breakthrough in your family or in your friends, or in your workplace. You want to be a light there. You want to make a difference there where God has placed you. You want to see maybe some people you love come to know Jesus Christ this year. So how do we start well and finish strong? Well, there's some keys in a passage we're going to look at, which is on page uh, 1058 of the Bibles, which will be in the uh, chairs. And also it's going to come up on the screens. And this is... um, We're going to start Luke 15 at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Verse 11, we're moving on to. Jesus says this. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him out to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. One of the keys we see in this passage is the importance of finding your motive. Finding your motive. When you start out on a new venture, when you start out on a new opportunity, it's important to know what's driving you. The younger son here starts a new venture, and it could be he's got all sorts of motives for that. They might be mixed. He might be looking for freedom or belonging to make a name for himself, to prove himself in some way. We don't know, but actually it's important to know what your motives are. I wonder if you know what your motives are for any resolutions you've made, new steps you've taken, even in the last few weeks. I remember a good friend of mine a few years ago uh, took me to one side and he said, Steve, can I give you some feedback? And everything in me wanted to say no. Uh, but, But I said, yes, yes, okay, yeah. And he said, Steve, you're a really driven guy. That's okay. But you need to know what's driving you. And I thought, he's right. What is driving me? What is it that's motivating me? What's getting me up in the morning? What's driving me on to do the different things I'm doing in my life? And what's clear is that one, something that's driving the younger son is the desire to get away from his father. We know that because he says, Father, give me my share of the estate. And the English language doesn't quite convey the shocking force of what he's saying there. I want you to imagine that one of your resolutions this year is to, you know, you've looked at your life, you're not happy with your job, your relationships, maybe even your partner, and so you think, you scrap it all, I'm going to go to Mauritius. I'm going to start a new life in Mauritius, I'm going to live a life of snorkeling and fishing and cooking on the beach, whatever it is. And, but you realize that to do that, you're going to need some substantial cash. And so you go to your parents' house, and you walk in, and you say, hi, mum or dad, or, you know, whoever you think is the softest touch. And you say, uh, you say, you say, you say, well, actually, um, 
I want my share of everything you own. All of it. All that I would inherit on your death, I want it now. Not just your spare cash, your savings accounts, my share of this home, my share of that car, my share of that dog. I want it all. If I'm honest, I'm fed up with waiting for you to die. I've got things to do. You'd be saying, in effect, I want your money and I wish you were dead. Has anyone here ever had a conversation like that? <laughs> Wonder how that would go? Some of you are like, is it okay to have that conversation? Like, I didn't know that was allowed. But it's shocking for us. But in that culture, it's hugely shocking. It's dishonoring and disrespectful. It would have meant the father, asking the father to divide the property would have meant selling the land. The family was connected to the land. It's a huge act of dishonor and disrespect. He would have to split his very life in two. And the culture would demanded that the father would have taken the younger son and taught him a lesson. But what's even more shocking is that the father does just what the younger son asks. He divides his property. He splits his life in two. He gives the younger son the freedom to rebel, to reject him. And the younger son gets all the money together and goes off. And he spends it on expensive living. And I wonder if you've ever gone off like that. I know I have. When I started at university, I I was kind of struggling to belong. I didn't realize it, but I had this motivation to belong. I desired to belong and connect, but I wasn't really felt like I was belonging um, at university. I felt like it was forced a bit, so I just decided to force it even more. I started to throw money at the problem. So I just thought, right, the first few weeks, I'm just going to spend as much money I need to be in all the party crowd. They had a lot more money than me, um, but I was able to spend all the money my father had given me, um, all the money that um, my good friend Mr. Barclays had given me and all the money he'd let me borrow as well and, uh, and I was just spending, spending, spending and being actually very reckless about it I didn't realise it until uh, I met this girl who I quite fancied and I invited her out on a first date and we are walking through town and I just needed to go to the, the bank machine to get some cash out and I kind of put my card in and it made this strange noise I'd heard before it went and spat my card out. And I thought, oh, that's strange. I must have got the pin number wrong. So I put it back in again. And um, she was kind of looking over my shoulder going, everything okay? I was like, it's fine. It's absolutely fine. Just sorting this all out. And I suddenly realized I'd managed to spend every single penny. There was nothing left. The overdraft was gone. And I was there on this first date in the middle of town thinking, how am I... I mean, you can't just say to someone you're on a first date with, can I borrow a tenner? Uh, it's just <laughs> it's not going to go well. And... Uh, and so I was wandering through town thinking, well, this is going to be the shortest relationship ever. There's no way. And I suddenly thought, oh, I could phone a friend. So as we were walking down uh, Tell Street in the centre of Oxford, I just managed to reach into my pocket and text my best mate. And I just said, first date, need cash, Tell Street. And he was, it was 7 p.m., so he was in bed at the time, classic student. And uh, I got, got her into the uh, bar, and then I came out to the door of the bar. And if you're in Tell Street that night, you might have seen something a bit odd. You'll have seen... Um, a guy on a bike racing as fast as he possibly could in his pyjamas <laughs> down the high street. And you would have seen him reach over with a bundle of cash and hand it to me, who leaned out of the bar to grab it. It looked a little bit like a drug deal. And, um, and then I came back in. And so I, I'd almost blown it because of my reckless spending. But um, uh, thank goodness, because of my friend, uh, I'm happy to say all these years later, she's now my wife. So it's... Uh, I'm very, but it's funny because... Eventually, if you're living like that, you have to come to your senses. 
Something's going to bring you to your senses. And the younger son came to his senses. He realizes he's blown it. He's wrecked it. And so he thinks, what I need to do is I'll just go back and I'll, I'll get a job as one of my father's workers. That's the best I can hope for. And he's not really thinking about fixing the relationship. He's just thinking about sorting his problems. So he thinks of a little kind of persuasive, maybe slightly manipulative speech and, um, and sets off home. But you know what's extraordinary? As he comes over the horizon, the father, who though the son has given up on him, has not given up on the son, who seems to be scanning the horizon in hope of his child's return, sees him and runs to him. He's filled with compassion for him. And he runs out to him And he embraces him and kisses him. And that act of extraordinary love changes things. You know, he he goes out. To run in that culture meant, meant patriarchs of the family weren't supposed to show their legs. He has to hitch up his robe and run to the sun. He doesn't care about any shame he might incur. He's so focused on restoring the relationship with his child throwing his arms around him, kissing him. And the son tries to start his little speech, but something has changed. He tries to do his pitch for a job, but it's almost like he can't get his words out. He he experiences this embrace from the father and understands, sees that the father really loves him, sees the extent of his love. And all he can say is, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. It's like a moment of searing clarity. But the father's response is to cover him with a robe, to put a ring on his finger, the sign of sonship, to start a celebration, to kill the fatted calf, to have a massive celebration because he's so overjoyed that the son is home. He's not listing his faults, he's covering over his offences. He just wants the relationship to be restored. And the only reason you would kill a fatted calf, it's so expensive, it's so valuable, is so you could invite the entire community, the whole village, to join in this celebration. Why? Because this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And what the son realizes in that moment is that he's known to the bottom of his soul and yet he's loved to the sky. Truly loved. In a way, probably he didn't dare to believe before. See, that simple truth, when it takes hold of your soul, changes everything. When you take a step to God, he rushes in, comes alongside you. Every other motive in your life, a desire for success, a desire for achievement, a desire for significance, will drive you until it wears you out. And leave you feeling lost. The greatest motivating force in the world is not fear, it's love. You don't need to prove yourself because Jesus has proven his love for you. That's what you see in the embrace of the younger son by the father. That he would run as far as he needs to run, go to any length, bear any burden, bear any cost to restore the relationship with you. And that is the most inspirational, the most motivating 
realization you can ever have in your life. That's the realization which transformed the whole trajectory of my life. That's the thing that gets me up in the morning. That's the thing as I start this new year, that I want to be absolutely at the center of everything I feel called to do, everything I'm starting anew, every venture I'm beginning, that I am known and loved completely by my heavenly Father. It completely changes everything. So you start well when you find your motivation. But how do you keep going? You need to fuel your passion. You need to fuel your passion. It's interesting. There's another son in this story, an elder son. And he's been there throughout. And to anyone looking on, it looks like he's made a great start. He hasn't run off. He hasn't humiliated his father. He stayed as part of the family. He's close by. He's contributed. And he asked the servant what's going on. And the servant says, your brother's come. Your father's killed the fattened calf. Uh, And the older brother, fascinatingly, is angry about it and refuses to go in. And it's interesting because Jesus uses, in the story he tells, the idea of brothers to communicate something very important about how we respond to other people when we see God at work in their life. You just heard from Gideon, who was in my Alpha group last term. And Gideon uh, hated coming to church, would only come a couple of times a year when he was invited by his brother, Zach, his older brother, Zach. His older brother suggested he come on Alpha last term. And he didn't just suggest, he came along with him. He was in a different group to give his younger brother some space. But then he booked him into the weekend away, made sure he came to the weekend away. And while Gideon was on the weekend away, he had this experience of God's love poured into his heart by the Holy Spirit. A transforming, completely transforming experience of the Holy Spirit. And after we'd prayed for him, and he was kind of overwhelmed by, by God, by this encounter, this undeniable encounter with God, I suddenly realized that Gideon's older brother, Zach, was at the back of the room watching all this kind of going on. And uh, how do you think he would react? I mean, he could have reacted in a number of ways. Could have sat there, arms folded, looking at it, going, why him? Like, of, of the two brothers, why him? Like, why not me? I've come to church. I've done all the right things, you know. I used to come in during the worship. I didn't sit outside in the car. Why are you feeling? I would like a little bit of the Holy Spirit. Why him? So annoying. Do you know how he reacted? As I walked up to him, I suddenly realized that he was weeping. Because his only prayer for the whole weekend was that his younger brother, Gideon, would experience the love of God for himself. That was all he wanted. That was why I'd invited him on Alpha. That was why he'd come with him. That was why he'd patiently sat through all the weeks, gently encouraging him. Because he was desperate for his brother to experience God's love. And he saw it come to pass. And I tell you, I I will always remember the the supper we had afterwards because we went off, the three of us together afterwards. And then we sat around this table and there was just laughter and tears and joy just overflowing as the brothers were kind of celebrating what had happened. But what we see in this story is something quite different. The elder brother just stands apart from the celebration. He refuses to celebrate. He's not overjoyed. He's unmoved. He's angry. Why are you making such a big deal of him for? What about me? 
But then what's really surprising again is that the father doesn't leave him out there to teach him a lesson or come out and discipline him. He goes out, he makes himself vulnerable and he pleads with the elder brother to come in. And that elder, elder son says, look, he can't even call him father. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. And you kind of feel like, slaving? You've been slaving for your father? That kind of implies a kind of joyless service. Something done in resentment. And he says, you've never even given me a young goat. Have you ever had an argument with someone where you get so angry and irritated that you just start making stuff up? You ever done that? Anyone ever want to confess to that? Like, you know, as you say it in your heart of hearts, it's not entirely true. But it really fits the argument well and it will score you a point. You've never even given me a young goat. Wait a minute. What happened? What did the father do? He took his property and divided it between them. The elder son got everything he could ever hope to get at the same time as the younger son. Then he says, this son of yours who squandered his wealth with prostitutes. How does he know? Was he there? No, he's so angry, so upset, so frustrated, so bitter. He's just making stuff up and lashing out at all those around him. All it says in the passage is he spent his money on expensive living. See, the elder son in his eyes has done everything right. He's lived a moral life. He's worked hard. He's achieved. But his motives are skewed and his passion has run cold. He's blind to how he actually feels. He's going through the motions of belonging without realizing the extent of the father's love. You know, it's very easy to go through the motions of belonging, but never actually know that you are loved from the tip of your head to the bottom of your feet. It's very easy to try and pretend that you're excited about all that's going on while feeling disappointed or disconnected from what's happening. And the thing is, when you're hiding your resentment, it always spills out, it always leaks out somewhere. It's like toothpaste. The more you grip it, the more it will spill out in other places. And often what can provoke it is seeing someone else experiencing the joy of their salvation or the joy of an encounter with God. But your reaction to other people's experience of redemption, it tends to reveal the state of your own relationship to God. Deep down you're feeling distant or disappointed. You you will tend to react with skepticism. If you've lost joy in seeing the salvation of other people, it might be you've literally lost sight of the wonder, the miracle of your own salvation. If you're feeling that though, I just want to challenge you today. See it as a warning sign. But be encouraged. Turn to him. He will come rushing back in. Take some time this week. Just say, God, would you stir afresh in my heart the wonder of your forgiveness, the wonder of your salvation. Would you give me that breathless wonder again? I don't want to take it for granted what you've done for me. I want to remind, speak to my soul, speak to my heart about who you are and what you've done for me and the difference you've made. I want to be cheering and celebrating when people come to faith in Jesus Christ. I remember just sitting there on my arms going, oh, which was the best story of the three? 
Not sure. This is miraculous, and it's happening all around us. Hundreds of people are coming in the center of London in 2018 to find out who Jesus Christ is and to discover more about faith. That's a miracle. Lots of people would give anything to see that happening. It's happening all around us. And it can happen for you and for your friends. I wonder if you, sometimes when you're feeling a bit frustrated with God, you give up faith that anything can change. Think, well, I've prayed for that person a couple of times. haven't become a Christian yet. What's the point in inviting them for Alpha? You know, well, I thought that person would become a Christian, but it's never happened. I thought that that person would, something would shift in their life, but it hasn't. Do you know, look at the Father in this passage. This is Jesus preaching about God's love. The Father who is motivated to restore the relationship, who is passionate about you. And those for whom you pray. The father who keeps trying to persuade the eldest son to come in. Who doesn't give up. Who says, look, I love you. Everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate. Come in and celebrate with me. The father is not a taskmaster who wants a perfect servant. He's a loving father who wants to embrace his children. God's love is not conditional on your perfect performance He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. And the story ends on a cliffhanger. The eldest son's out. And we don't know how he'll respond. But we know that God is a God who searches. We know that God is a God who pleads. That God is a God who's willing to go to any length, bear any cost, pay any price to restore relationship with his children. Just think that what could happen this year as we make our realization of that truth, that we matter that much to God. That is our primary motivation. As we stir up that passion in us to keep going, to be inspired again, to let the good news of our salvation reawaken joy in our hearts and to share that with other people. Think about the difference that could make. Motivated by his love, passionate to see our friends come to know Jesus. To go out bold, inspired, confident that God is even more passionate about knowing our friends than we are. That God is more passionate about starting relationships with people than we are. That he doesn't just push us out, he goes before us, he goes behind us, and by his spirit he empowers us and enables us. And we could see our schools, our universities, our communities, our workplaces transformed by his love, by his grace. And we can see the name of Jesus lifted high in our church, in our city, and in this nation. In Jesus' name, amen.